I mean, Miles, the line is intoned now as a sort of chapter heading in our literary artistic history. Eileen Miles grew up in Boston, Cambridge, and moved to New York in 1974 to become a poet. And you did. 20 volumes later, you were very nearly the New York poet with a branch office in Marfa, Texas, and still a strong Boston accent that is part of the, of the poems. Uh-huh. And a fascinating relationship back and forth. Do you want to explain it? You and New York? New York and you? Jack Spicer says... Poetry hates Boston, and you had your own dose of it in your non-elegy to Robert Lowell. Uh-huh. Um, how's it going? I, I think in Boston, I speak in Boston, I write in Boston, but I live in New York. Even when I was living in Boston, friends of mine, because I came from a working-class background, wanted to suppress the Boston accent so as to be welcomed into the larger culture or the, the other culture and so on. But when I got mm. to New York in the 70s, I was well aware that the cool people like Bruce Springsteen and Patti Smith were flaunting their ethnic roots, and mine happened to be Boston, so I never got rid of the Boston accent, though it got rid of me largely, but it remains on certain <laughs> words and syllables. And when I go into a reading, it's there as kind of a wah-wah pedal. I think it is part of the sound. I read John Wieners, and I know how to read him because he writes in a Boston accent, and it's a particular sound system. I love your John Wieners readings, and we've got to have a dose of that before we're done. But you're also a child of... Frank O'Hara and very, John Ashbery. Very, very. The and, definitive New York poets. Uh-huh. And I was lucky enough to know John and be friends with him as a young poet. He put a poem of mine in the Partisan Review in 1977. I thought I had gone to heaven, you know. Mm. As soon as I got to New York, I remember standing in a bookstore named Coliseum Books up by Columbus Circle. And it was one of the great old bookstores. And I picked up the Frank O'Hara selected poems. I thought he was Frank Harris. I thought he was a pornographer. And I mm. opened the book and it was like... He started speaking. It was a voice that was the city. It was a gay voice. There was so much kind of energy and coolness and acceptance. I just thought, I want to do that. Yeah, the voice is still speaking in you, if I dare say. But I'm also struck by the continuity here. The continuity with early you, with the vernacular, conversational, provocative, queer, anecdotal, hurried diaristic, almost journalistic (laughs) voice in you. Um, Thank you. That's such a great description. I'm honored. (laughs) You know, can uh, I say one thing? There was also a a relationship to blackness in that when I came to New York in the 70s, people were talking about black English. They were talking about eubonics, mm. that blacks in many situations spoke another English and that it was a valid English. And when I heard that, I thought, well, then my own pastiche of working class and lower middle and intellectual class Hmm. should then be okay too and was determined to write in it because I thought then why shouldn't my English my vernacular count it's so fascinating partly because of the contrast and we were thinking you know Michael Bloomberg grew up in Medford known Mm. as Mepha around here and Bill de Blasio grew up in Cambridge Mm -hmm. and yet they somehow resolved that tension you keep it alive there was the cop in New York. Bill Bradley. Yeah, former chief of police. When he gets on the radio in New York, you just hear this smooth, cool, unaltered Boston accent. It was so delightful for me. Yeah, but the dialogue is still active in your head with the teenager who wore her Catholic school uniform on the job at the Harvard Coop. Absolutely. And in your poetry today, in a working life, you're in continuous sort of dialogue with members of your mother. 
Uh-huh. And yesterday you told us you went to the family house in Arlington. Walk us through that. Amazing. It was so amazing because I was having a get-together with two friends who I've known since high school. And one lives in Arlington and I was staying with her. And so she was like, Swan Place? That's the name <laughs> of my street. And I said, okay. <laughs> and so we walked to the, it was a dead-end street right off Arlington Center, walked to the house and looked at it, and I mean, so many things, the porch, the roof, the roof my father fell off, which led to his death, wow. staircases were gone, it was, you know, it was, it was the same location, and suddenly a woman comes out the door and says, can I help you? And I said, well, I grew up here, you know, I'm a writer, and I've even written about this Did you house. tell her who you were? Do you know no. who I am? Yeah, yeah, I did my own kind of anonymous version of it, and she said, do you want to come in? And I was mm. like, yeah, and so there I was, in my childhood bedroom, and there we were in the den, and there we were in the... And it was, it was remarkable. I was sort of shaking for the next few hours because, you know, I touched the land. It has everything to do with your poetry, if I may say, I mean, Miles. Your poetry feels like a conversation with that kid in a certain way, but a mm-hmm. conversation with today, with yesterday, not what you had for lunch, but it feels like a kind of running report in mm-hmm. your head to your parents or your girlfriends, or your poets, or your shrink, or Mm -hmm. something. But it's a kind of internal monologue that we all, in a certain way, carry on. Right, right. And I think the part that links it to the outside, perhaps, is the rhythm, you know, and that you are included, too, you know. And I think rhythm is where we kind of scratch the surface of reality and dailiness. And it might be my interior monologue going on, but the rhythm makes it so you can pick up the receiver and hear it too, I think. Interesting. You know, it's percussive. Give us a taste of it. Give us a poem. Sure. Maybe first poem, which I love. They're all evocative. Okay. First poem. Every experience of being and day awakens me to the difficulty. I change my socks. I see my feet. You don't so much mind my flaws. I think at the world when I go out. Women in chairs and couch, one of both a tender dog in actual tears. Today it snows. We go live. I love that we go live, but I'm not sure what it means. Live that radio. Is, we go live means this was a couple having their first fight. Oh, wow. This was like all kind of loving. It isn't this great. And then suddenly it was like, it goes wrong. We go live. Okay, we're in the real world now. We're a relationship that fights too. First poem means first fight. <laughs> <laughs> Let's hear that other one. For my friend. And this was advice to a friend who was in love. And I was thinking I was the person who was capable of giving advice, which was so ridiculous. (laughs) For my friend, nothing better for people than dogs. Nothing better than making you scream here. There were two super new cars, then some pink chicken fillets. I guess there were berries for sale in Scandinavia, a man in a plaid shirt and cookies. Also, they are working in the cemetery. I can see their blue ladder from here. A man has written a book about many deaths or many things to do after. Read it, read it, they say. But what comes after is a small idea. Now is large, rainy. Amy, I wish you luck. Bit of advice there. Yeah, and fun to read because it turns at the end. It's a trick I learned from the poet James Schuyler, which is at the end, he has a way of saying a final line where he's poking you right in the chest. You think this person's just talking and suddenly I'm on the hook. Amy, I wish you luck. Can I ask... These poems, they had this sort of stream of mind, conversational, quick, Mm -hmm. oh, don't forget, almost like a shopping list. Oh, yeah, got to call so-and-so. But is that the way they're done in the sense of fast? Or tell us about the process of revision, of scheming, knowing that's the line. I learned something from independent filmmakers in the 90s. I dated one when people were still 
using film, making Super 8 films. And so there was a whole thing about your shooting ratio. You didn't want to spend a lot of money on film. And so you had to get really good at what they called editing in the camera, meaning you knew when to stop pushing the button. You know, you weren't like Charlie Chaplin and you do 171 takes. You would shoot it, stop, start. You knew what you needed and what you didn't need. And so I feel like my whole school of writing and the way I've figured it out is to kind of write in takes and grabs. The staccato really isn't so much in the words is when I stop and jump to someplace else, you know? So it's kind of like I'm musing and then I'm like, I'll take that. I'll take that. I'll take that. How about this? The play is this jerkiness, which I think is American because I think the American language is violent. It's not a smooth surface here. And I think that's why it's not English poetry. It's not metrics. It's jazz. It's so interesting. I was wondering if it was a sort of almost philosophical definition of what life is. It is these moments. It's oh, quick. Oh. It's improvisational. It's gone. It's now. It's over. It's coming. Yeah, I think that's the larger picture, and that's true. But from I think from the the micro level, it's faints. It's like a little boxing thing. You're kind of right. wiggling your body. You're wiggling from your body and your mind in between the two. Interesting. Yeah. Let's hear Put My House. Okay. Put My House Inside the Boat. Can we do that? Put my dog inside of your dog. Put these birds inside of yours. Put your ocean all over my mountains. Put my mountains in there. Put my dog in yours. My dog walk is safe inside your dog walk. Let me eat inside you. Let me eat your food. Let me eat your house. Put your house inside my dog. Put your dog on my boat. Naturalize. Put my heart in yours. Put my mouth on your mouth. Put my hair in yours. Let me breathe inside you. Let me smell your guts. Put your boat in my eye. Let me eat your friends. Put these hours inside your hours. Eat this bird, cheap. Eat my dog's foot. Eat that ocean. Run to him or the ocean. Run to them. Hear these birds, cheap. Fly to me. Eat my foot. Put my house inside yours. In your mind, think me fly. This fly me home. Love me now. Forget your phone, eat my heart. Run to him or the ocean. Tweet, 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 dog growl, cluck, click. Put my house right in there. Yeah, that's me looking out the window. Look at me, bark, bark, bark. Put your heart inside that bark. Who are you advising on that one? Well, my then girlfriend was during the pandemic and we were having a long distance relationship, which I was fine with. She was not. So there were two lives, one being uh, led on Long Island where there are boats and ocean, and I was living in Marfa where there are mountains. And so I thought this was kind of like a Valentine in which I say, how about this? Put it all together this way. It was a attempt at a resolution, which I think finally was not possible. So it was jokey surrealism trying to rectify an impossibility. The thing that's so funny about that poem is that I've never written that poem before. There's families of poems, and I can sort my poems. I return to styles that I've abandoned. I often write a poem again. It's not the same poem. But this one, I have never written that poem before. What is the word for, not pastiche, but sort of putting images in images? Yeah. I have a poem that is like a political poem, Put My Pussy. It does a take on a um, Breton poem that goes, My wife, my wife, my wife. And I always thought it was so sexist. And I, so I did a poem that was in the 90s when everybody was being very pro sex and it was the height of the AIDS crisis. And it was, I always put my pussy in the middle of trees. And then it goes into a whole incantatory thing of pussies. <laughs> and so that's a little bit up this alley, but there's some way in which the mechanics of this I've never done before. And I mm. felt sort of shocked 
in a happy way by the performance of it. While we're at it, dogs in your poetry are very important. They have a special role. They're exempted from a lot of human criticism. What's that about you and dogs? I think dogs are perfect. They absorb us without complaint. They witness everything. We negotiate. They make my life better. I make their life better. In a way, it's the perfect relationship. Which reminds me, you've got to read Mice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Talk about cohabitation and right. mutual benefit. Right, right. Something. No, this is totally about my sort of unchosen pets. So this is mice. They see a cluster of small rubber ducks and scraps of broken shells and think, I'll shit there. We describe them as brazen when they run through what actually is their home. So I begin to kill them because I'm better than them. One was seen running into the bathroom, my bathroom, and a small frail one was found dead right on the floor and the poison is working and I feel bad because in fact I like living with them. They're part of my life. They're little shits. Everywhere, and I have killed their child. They're unclean, anyone would say. Isn't it why I must kill them? But I'm unclean too. Isn't it why they're here? And I generally have guests who say, this place is so small, they look around and I feel shame. And I look around usually right after a trip or in a couple of days, and it's small. But not to them. They think it's huge, perfect. And that is a friend. And why don't I keep them around? Come back, come back. And I know you will. There's a taste of Eileen Miles in the new book, A Working Life. Working class echoes, modern rhythms. But I want to ask you what we're all going through, which is to say, where are we at, Eileen Miles, in 2023? Mm-hmm. We're not sort of post 9-11 anymore. Uh-huh. Uh, we're sort of post BLM. We're climate catastrophe yet to come. Mm-hmm. Uh, the future seems to have disappeared in certain ways. People are troubled in a different way than I can remember. Yeah. Um, yeah. Who are you speaking to and how do you conversationally deal with our condition, whatever it is? Right, right. I, I feel we all need a new architecture in living. You know, I mean, I think everybody needs to look hard, find the people they can do it with and make it. And it's not building a building, it's building a society. You know, our government wrecked our constitution, doesn't work. It was designed to our be Congress like this. Our sure as hell doesn't work. Yeah. yeah. There is a way in which it's up to the future. These kids know the environment is being killed. Kids know the government doesn't work, that our laws are broken, that racism is, you know, like ubiquitous. But I think we all need to start both personally and collectively, both finding the people we can work with, not even mattering so much if we win. It's just that we attempt it, you know, and that we know ourselves Mm. through these relations. I mean, the collectivity, you know, like that mice poem is a collective. I'm speaking to a collective. I'm not just speaking to one person. And that was one of the smartest things I ever heard. Thich Nhat Hanh said, in the future, the Buddha is a group. Interesting. Before you leave Thich Nhat Hanh, I mean, Our place in the world has changed radically. You and I grew up in the post-war, and we were the GI heroes of ourselves, Mm -hmm. the world, um, the future. Strong and healthy in 12 building block ways. You know, we were just going to be okay. I mean, AIDS was the first freak out. It was like, wait a second. This is not supposed to happen. And then people weirdly forgot that. 
You know, when we had this new pandemic, people were like, this hasn't happened since the Spanish flu. I was like, wait a second. Interesting. Did yeah. you remember the 80s and 90s when, you know, thousands, millions, I don't know how many people died of AIDS, you know? So a lot of our ideas have been revealed to be not true, dysfunctional, the reality we were brought up to live in. The architecture of America is falling down, you know, and I feel like we're in a failing empire. And exactly. We, and yeah, I think young people do blame us because we were there at the crest. But we didn't create the viruses that came in. But the attack on the environment did. I feel that. Consumption went crazy. You know, but I feel, as part of that generation, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, where was I? What were we thinking? What were we thinking in Vietnam? What were we thinking in doing it worse in Laos, Cambodia, and then a God save us in Iraq? I mean, where were we? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I would say we knew I mean, that was the most disturbing thing when the United States decided to attack Iraq. I thought, well, we all know that there are no weapons of mass destruction, that this is a fraudulent war. How does Congress not know? And then I realized it's the same with the environment. They do know, but they have invested an invested interest in failure because they're trying to break something else, you know? Do the people who want to drill, drill, drill not know that they are, in fact, destroying the world? And I think they do. They just don't want to leave the party, you know? And I feel or like... the bank. I mean, did they know that cigarettes were bad for your lungs? They of course did. they did. But there was money to be made. So all those falsehoods we've been brought up with, it's sort of like an unreal world was being constructed continuously all through the 20th century, you know? And now all the chickens are come home to roost. Mm. The thing I like about this book... Uh, working life is that it really refers to a model. You know, an architect makes a working model. Mm -hmm. And for me, I think, is this my life or is this my life? My body or my book, my writing? There's this relay, you know, and the person who was in their 20s writing poems in this time that nobody wanted when I was mm -hmm. young and poor was the freest person I've ever been. And what do they call it? It's a French expression, la chance dans la malchance. And it means the good luck in the bad luck. And the good luck in... The pandemic, if you didn't get too sick or if you didn't die, was suddenly you had a new experience of time. And that brought up unionism. Now we have labor struggles like we haven't had for 50 years because right. people realized they were getting a bad deal at their jobs. And I got cast back into a time that was me years older suddenly having a lot of time. And there were millions of poems in there, you know, because that is what I do to push back in a way is I make a mm -hmm. little reality that I want to live in and I hand it to you and I keep trying to change it that way. We'll come back to this eternal business of the work and the life, the formation of Eileen Miles and of this body of work. But I want to hear you talk about East River Park yeah. in Manhattan. Yeah. On yeah. the southeast tip of Manhattan it was all filled in land. A lot of it got washed away in Sandy. And now it's a battle. What yeah. are we going to do with it? Well, for starters, it wasn't washed away even slightly during Sandy. It really? Was, Is that it a myth? Was myth. Yeah, it was flooded for two hours. The public housing across the street from East River Park was flooded. But that was because the water came from uptown where there was no park. It came flooding oh. down FDR, you know, and everybody who lives in the neighborhood knows that. I mean, if you stand in East River Park on a beautiful day and look down at lower Manhattan and look up, you think, this is a beautiful piece of real estate, mm. you know? So how could it be in a neighborhood where all these poor people are enjoying barbecues and using a free amphitheater and playing fields and having the time of their lives? Because in New York City, we have Central Park, we have Prospect Park. These parks are not supported by public funding. They're supported by endowments. They're Harvard and Yale. They have 
conservancies. We the have no endowment, con- so to speak. Yes. So we had no conservancy in our park. There's such a thing as we know, disaster capitalism, and Sandy was such an example. It's sort of like, oh, first they were going to save the neighborhood. So they had one plan to kind of, you know, shore up the park a little bit, but Mm. essentially leave the park alone. And then suddenly at the last minute, de Blasio comes flying in with this plan, was like, no, we've got a better idea. We're going to destroy the park and build a new park on top of it. And it was like, where did that come from? And it was more expensive. It came from a real estate firm called HRNA that is all over city planning in New York Mm. City. You can't write about it in any of the papers because the papers are all deeply involved. The return of Robert Moses, in effect. Yeah. He built... The park just because he wanted to build FDR, and FDR is the problem. Toxicity pouring into all that. The highest asthma rates in New York City are right there. So right after the pandemic, when I understood that this was happening, I just joined a group called East River Park Action, and later we created a activist group called One Thousand People, One Thousand Trees. Because indeed there were a thousand trees along the East River. Some of them eighty, hundred, and twenty year old trees. And suddenly there in the New York Times is Eileen Miles hugging. One of the oldest cherry trees in New York, right? Yeah. And I got arrested for doing it because there's a street in New York called Cherry Street, and there's been groves of cherry trees there for 400 years. And there it was spring, and they were in blossom, and there they were cutting down the trees. And everybody in the neighborhood was standing out in the street crying because for years they had seen this happen in the spring was part of under you know so it's the question of who gets to have nature in new york city well let's talk about it as a metaphor or as a distillation microcosm of our political struggle exactly exactly well i mean fill it out sort of the helplessness of people crying over a cherry tree i mean the first i've learned about city planning the first piece of city planning in america was to get rid of the native americans that was the first plan it's like extermination genocide disregard for who's living there or how they're living has been like a building block of our nation who didn't come to the rescue here for one thing, our city councilor, Carlina Rivera, who grew up in the neighborhood on Rivington Street, that was her claim to fame. She was a local girl, single mom. And, um, you know, she is ambitious. And so at the very last moment, she moved her vote over there because the way New York City politics are, if the local city councilor is against something, they have something called dependencies, like, I get what I want, you get what you want. She could have stopped it. But she saw the winning side being, you know, the de Blasio team. And de Blasio had so many campaign debts, because he started chopping down these trees in December just before he was leaving office, and they did it 24-7. It's like nobody starts a project like that. Mm. It was insane, and it was because he had to make sure this began before he left office. double overtime for everybody, but we're not going to stop. Nothing will stop us. Well, we're going to do as much damage as possible so there's no way back. Wow. Because he had gotten big real estate support for his campaigns. So he said he would do this, and so he had to... I mean, you know, I wasn't in the room where the deal was made, but there was a part of the government that was the watchdog on how money was spent, but the person who was in charge of that was the mayor. So, you know, Mm. it was like there was nobody watching. I read those New York Times stories now, and I can barely believe that it's over, that it happened, without becoming, you know, every environmental group, every citizen's group engaged. Something was missing. Maybe the New York Times, too. There's two kinds of PR. There's a PR that kind of spins myths, and there's a kind of PR where we don't say a word. And so I think between those two things, Uh one PR myth was that we're protecting the people in the public housing and that the people who were um, opposed to this 
plan were a bunch of white outsiders. They racialized it. And we had plenty of people of color on our side, you know, and there was plenty of people in those public housings that did not want this to happen. So there was a myth spun. And then also there was no coverage. There was no coverage. We had a march with 1,500 people walking down Avenue C and Houston Street. It didn't get in the paper. It didn't happen. It didn't happen. So that was a big part. The status today, the park is half gone. I mean, the, the juiciest, most communal parts of it, the amphitheater, a lot is gone. The oldest trees are gone, but there's still half a park. So for me, I have two things. I, I think we should start something called East River Half a Park Conservancy. And both do a send-up and a reality check because there are 505 trees still down there. There's still a running track. The tree that I was seen hugging in the New York Times is still there. So there's that. And the other thing is to do one of the beautiful lawsuits, like the one they did for Lake Erie and the one they're trying to do for the Great Salt Lake, the personhood of the trees, the personhood of the park. Because if a corporation is a person, why is East River Park not a person? You know, Why is every beautiful London plain not a person? And the one more thing about trees I will say is that before there were people, there were trees, and trees created oxygen. So trees created the conditions for human life. Without trees, there would be no us and what we're doing right now in destroying them. I mean, the New York City Council has meetings talking about tree canopy in New York City, and we're like, how can you be talking about this while you're cutting down 1,000 of the oldest trees in the city? I should have mentioned, you were a presidential candidate right in in 1992. So you see a big picture. Apply the lessons of East River Park to, I don't know what, the Colorado River or the country and its politics, which seems somehow muffled, silenced. Well, we know that I think Citizens United was one of the big problems, that most of the people in Congress are millionaires. And they're not millionaires just because they're good businessmen. They're millionaires because they're getting a lot of support from business and industry and interested characters, you know. So we need to take the money away from politics. That's a big... And we need to re-examine the way our government is structured, but we need to take the money out because the money is making it so every decision is an economic decision. Everything is paying a debt. In the same way that in New York City, all these Catholic schools, really good ones, are being sold. The buildings are being sold to pay the debt of the priests who were involved with sexual abuse scandals. And so kids are losing Mm. twice. First they were hurt, and now they're losing their schools to pay the debts. You know, And I think that so many things that are happening around the country are just the political debts of politicians. They've got to pay the bill. And so we lose you know, the Atlanta forest. We lose the Philadelphia meadows. We lose our national parks. We lose our clean water in Alaska and our mm. wildlife. We have to lose it because they've got to pay the bills. You travel a lot, Eileen Miles. Where do you find activist, smart citizens working on these issues, roused. Everywhere. To tour as a poet, I meet a self-selecting part of the population. I mean, so the people who come to my readings are like-minded people. But there's lots of them. I think it's a big conversation. I think it's a young conversation, but I think a lot of people of our generation are well aware of what's gone wrong, you know, what is going wrong and what has to be stopped cold. We're in a live-or-die moment, and I think everybody knows it. Come back to the... Life and work question. How's it going? The story of Eileen Miles herself. I'm a they, them. I use they, them. So it's Eileen Miles themselves. I did change that like five years ago, six years ago. Suddenly I thought, oh, gender-wise, I like being a collective. So I vote for they. Interesting. Do you live in the developing story of the life 
has it overtaken the creation of poetry or not? Do these two stories talk to each other? Oh, I mean, yeah, I think I'm lucky enough to live in sort of a, a feedback of my own creation. You know, I started writing Keeping Journals when I was 10. You know, I needed space. I needed someplace to be. It became a little journal, you know, and I've been writing ever since. And I mean, for me, the big realization was the moment when I realized that even though I was thinking, I want this, I want to go here, maybe I should become this, maybe the only thing I was really doing consistently was writing poems, you know, so I have a deep trust in poetry. And I always have, because it seems like a little tool of liberation. And it always was. And so it keeps whatever I become, the poem is becoming. I think the act of becoming and the act of writing poems are kind of the same thing for me. It's almost like how I stand. I mean, I was like, I'm silent. I don't know what's going on. And suddenly I feel this discomfort that produces a poem. And I was like, oh, okay. And then I have an anthem for the new era because I have to keep changing or, you know. You've answered the question that I didn't ask very well at all, but that, that makes sense. Leave us with a poem, please. All right. And maybe advice. This is WTF. It's an acronym. I love that poem. It's an acronym. I wrote this just before the pandemic, so it's coming from a funny time. When El Presidente mocks the disabled journalist and gives the female astronaut the finger, it's not luck. The year is named 2020 for a reason, and we have to make up what it is. It's not unusual that I'm here with you. I took last year off. I'm back. Are you back? Did you know that Duterte is supported by the Marcos family? Amelda Marcos is back. The tree out the window is. I'm going to have sex in a really good way. Today's back. I'm offering a simplistic pattern for revolution, the necessary return of the conditions. Hearing you pour close and putting it back in the refrigerator. Beep. The return to love. The lamb named Boris saw an opening in attaching himself to a warm person who he followed around, and she asked the farmer, can I take him home? The farmer said, yes, Boris was saved from predictable slaughter. Can we save ourselves? Every cow that jumps off the truck can be free. Will you jump with me? I have picked someone warm, and she is sitting on the couch. The flames lick high. I am stoned by the numbers of this year, 12, 2020, 2, 2, 2020, 2, 20, 2020. Plenty for you, plenty for me. I relax the slats, allowing in a striped light. Flames licking wildly. She's cooking a book. It's cooking wood. Here's her beloved foot. I have followed someone warm, and look where it took me. I'm thinking how funny the Yates line on his tombstone, horsemen pass by. There are no horsemen. He imagined futurity as antiquity. I do now. The wildness of the branches out there. Some kind of speech. I doubt if this is art or labor or an advice column. I'm not lucky. You read a lot of books and then you're a sieve. Once upon a time, I heard poetry. Nothing else was catching the words in the air. I do this and the world burns. I may be used, be burning alive as the log falls. And knowing that we fall, turning, whatever it means, but we must. This land is not my land. It never was. This is not high school where the bullies rule. This is the future or the earth. No battle. It is, was. We're more than enough, right? To turn the blue earth, to take it home. The motion is ours. 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 <laughs> I didn't mind if that was... Marvelous. And you got my birthday in there, 2 2020 Oh, how nice. But you've given us the work, the life, the Bostonian, the New Yorker, and we're very grateful. I'm so happy to be here with you again, Chris. Thank you. 
Eileen Miles' new book of poetry is called A Working Life. Open Source is a proud member of Hub and Spoke, a nonprofit podcast collective of independent voices. This week, listen to Out There, a Hub and Spoke show that ventures outdoors. The season four opener is about Jacob Erickson, whose anxiety about climate change almost killed him until nature rekindled his will to live. Find it at outtherepodcast.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. And find the whole Hub and Spoke world at hubspokeaudio.org.